This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Now, two things that don't go together, Colorado and surfing. Except they do go together on the South Platte River. And it's a symbol of the river's improving health. A $15 million project is underway along a one-mile stretch near Denver to enhance flood control, wildlife, and recreation. We visited River Run Park in Sheridan, which isn't even a year old, to meet its designer, Ben Nielsen, who's also a skilled river surfer. Surfing a river is a... it's an amazing experience. Nielsen's suiting up for an afternoon surf. He has put on board shorts, a neoprene top, and for safety, a helmet and a life jacket. His surfboard, he fashioned himself. It's very different than... You know, surfing a wave in the ocean, the wave is a standing wave, and you're in one place, but the water's just rushing at you and under your feet. There's no feeling like that glide on the surface of the water and the speed. A unique feature of this park is the wave shaper, which allows for the bottom of the river to be manipulated to build a standing wave suitable for surfing. Ben opens the door to a big underground bunker to access the controls. What I'm doing right now is just making some slight adjustments to uh, optimize the wave. Uh, So we'll get out there and see how it's surfing. The wave's about 10 feet wide, flowing over a man-made structure with platforms on either side so the surfer can jump on. It takes Ben a few tries, but he finally hits a sweet spot. He emerges from the river, slightly disappointed in the conditions, but still invigorated. Yeah, no, uh, the flows today are kind of on the lower end um, as far as when uh, the park really starts to shine uh, from a surfing standpoint. But the water feels great. Yeah, it feels just really good to, to get wet. And when Ben Nielsen, again, who not only surfs this park but helped design it, was nice and dry, we chatted a bit about the future of this stretch of the South Platte near Sheridan and Englewood, outside Denver. What does this park represent? Because it's more than just about recreation. It is in some ways a sign of how we have viewed rivers in the past and how we are starting to view them now. Yeah, that's right, Ryan. Not that long ago, society as a whole kind of viewed rivers, particularly in urban environments, as being a place to get rid of waste, a place that uh, was used for disposal. And... You know, really in the last, you know, several decades, that's really changed around. And Colorado's always really been at the forefront of that change. After a big flood in 1965 that was very devastating to the Denver metro area, you know, the community leaders started looking at the river saying, you know what, we need to do something about this. And what came out of that was actually a very forward-thinking philosophy. And that's really uh, was first kind of encapsulated in Confluence Park So in the 70s, Confluence Park was originally built. And seeing that transformation in that area, and you can see it today, I mean, it's one of the most desirable places in the Denver metro area. You know, that really all started by re-engaging and embracing the river as an asset to the community. And let me say that Confluence Park is where Cherry Creek meets the South Platte, right? That's correct. And so you want to bring that spirit to this stretch of the South Platte, Why does it need it? I mean, this particular stretch is, in my mind, kind of a forgotten reach. After the 65 flood, 
uh, the Corps of Engineers and the metro area as a whole really got serious about flood control. And with that built was called the Tri-Lakes Project, which was Chatfield, Cherry Creek, and Bear Creek Reservoirs. Yeah. But what people might not know is that actually about five miles of the South Platte River was actually channelized and improved to convey floods better. And this project sits in that reach. You know, flood control is incredibly important. You never think about flooding until it floods. You know, so this, this reach really was redesigned to convey floodwaters and has done a really, really good job at doing that. But that isn't necessarily something that activates this space for people. Exactly. It's super one-dimensional. And, I mean, rivers by their very nature are dynamic. You know, this project here and Confluence Park, for that matter, are dynamic projects. They are multi-purpose. What is the, the grand vision? So you can surf there now, as you demonstrated. Talk more about it. The overall vision of River and Park is to reconnect the community with their river and to improve the health of the river. Does that include the health of fish in the river? Yeah. So, you know, something that people might not know is that there's a really active, you know, fishing community in the the Denver metro area and there are fish here. So um, this project is providing better habitat, native vegetation, um, reconfiguring the bottom of the river so that the ecosystem as a whole functions better. So you demonstrated the surfing. I can imagine there are people reacting with, that's not very natural, surfing on a Colorado River. Is, is this really about returning the river to a more natural place if people are surfing on it? Well, as you know, Ryan, I mean, people uh, recreate on, you know, the quote-unquote natural rivers all over the state. Um, and so, you know, it happens today on the South Platte River. And, um, you know, really... The actual act of surfing and the actual act of the recreation is is really just a very small aspect to what's been done here. Most of the project is constructed, you know, for flood protection, for better habitat. And these little recreational add-ons are just uh, kind of frosting on the cake, so to speak. How clean is the water in the South Platte? And do you have any misgivings about going in it? Yeah, urban rivers have their challenges um, from a water quality standpoint, and the South Platte River certainly is no exception to that. What River and Park has going for it is, is that it does sit high in the watershed, meaning that it's fairly upstream. And so it definitely has, you know, better water quality than, you know, further downstream. Bottom line is this. I've probably recreated over 100 days in this reach in the last five years, and I've never had any problems. I don't know anybody that has. You know, I bring my kids down here, and I don't, I don't have any misgivings, as you say, about recreating here. But, you know, that being said, I mean, people need to use common sense. You know, after rainfall events, and there's a lot of runoff that come off the streets and parking lots and people's yards, it's not a good time to be in the river. But, yeah, I think with common sense, it's a great place to, uh, to get in the water. So your business is River Design. Your company, McLaughlin Whitewater Design Group, builds these sorts of projects around the country. And do you see this then as a trend, nation or even worldwide, to rethink rivers through cities? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's so much momentum, so many positive things that are happening really in the rivers across the United States. And, you know, really what what draws me to these projects are in urban settings. A lot of these rivers have been so abused and so underused and are in such bad shape that it provides tremendous opportunity for positive change. You know, we've done projects all over the country, and, you know, this is becoming pretty common 
it's no longer a strange idea that people want to recreate in a river, that there's economic reasons to improve a river, improve livability of a city, you know, connect that community to nature. All of those things are just such exciting aspects of this type of work. And it's really cool to see this happen in in my backyard. What are other examples of communities that have done this across the country? Probably the biggest one is Columbus, Georgia. Columbus was a, a textile industry town. And of course, all of that type of industry has gone overseas. And, you know, they really saw their river as a potential asset And uh, we worked with them to remove two dams that they no longer needed and really restored the river um, back for uh, over two miles. And it is unbelievable, the change. Um, When we first were there a decade ago, the entire downtown was boarded up. And now you go there and there's just a vibrancy and and just a celebration of their river. Well, thanks so much for being with us and happy surfing. Thanks, Ryan. It was a pleasure being here. Ben Nielsen is with McLaughlin Whitewater Design Group in Denver, which is helping reshape a stretch of the South Platte, touching Sheridan, Englewood, and Littleton in Arapahoe County. He joined us from River Run Park. There are photos of him surfing at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. In the span of about a month, explosions at oil and gas facilities along the Front Range have killed three people. In Firestone in April, two men died when a blast destroyed a home. And last week, at another Anadarko facility nearby, an explosion killed a worker. The events have renewed questions about oil and gas developments. One issue in particular, how close homes should be to these operations. CPR's Ben Marcus reports. A few years ago, the city of Firestone produced this promotional video. The former mayor is there with snow-capped peaks in the background, talking up the innovative schools, its proximity to DIA, low tax rates. And we have abundant land and infrastructure ready for development. When you consider all of these things, it's no wonder that the U.S. Census Bureau found that Firestone was the fastest-growing community in Colorado over the past decade. One important thing left out of the video that the landscape is dotted with oil and gas wells, many connected through a web of underground pipelines. Sam Mamet is with the Colorado Municipal League, which lobbies on behalf of cities. He says cities have to grow, and the state's 54,000 active oil and gas wells aren't going anywhere. Well, that's just um, the sobering reality of the situation, Uh, and uh, no one can really change that ostensibly unless they just want to impose growth moratoria uh, in these communities, and that is not likely to occur. Still, the fatal home explosion in Firestone has renewed debate over how close homes should be built to oil and gas wells. The well in question was just about half a football field away from the house. Some argue that state regulators have the authority to create restrictions on where homes are built in relation to existing wells. Mammoth's heard that argument. If they indeed do have that authority, then my bias is to start at that level before we start having uh, conversations in uh, in the legislature. In other words, he'd rather regulators use their expertise to tackle this than the 100 lawmakers at the statehouse. Preferably, he wants cities to control their own growth. 
but right now their regulations when it comes to setbacks are all over the place. Some cities restrict home development to 750 feet from wells. In Firestone, the city allows homes to be built just 150 feet away. Matt Lepore is the state's top oil and gas regulator. He says the state's setback restrictions only cover the placement of new wells near existing homes. And when the state increased its setbacks to 500 feet a few years ago, he got an urgent call from a city official. He wanted my absolute reassurance that if we had a 500-foot setback, he could still approve residential building within 200 feet of the well. And I said, yes, sir, that is the way the law works. Lepore is convinced that the state does not have the authority to restrict where cities allow home development near wells. And besides, he says the proximity to the well was not the problem in Firestone. It was how close the home was to an uncapped flow line. Flow lines can stretch far from producing wells. If the line ends six feet from the basement foundation and gas flows through it, you're going to have a problem. So a greater setback distance from the well probably wouldn't have prevented the Firestone explosion. So the setback is really a nonsensical argument. That's Gregory Miedema, runs the Northern Colorado Home Builders Association. He says builders need to be able to put homes on as much land as they can to make the numbers work. Otherwise, increase setbacks, reduce density, higher home costs because they're not making any more land. He says people are moving north of Denver to escape high housing costs. He says if the state or local governments restrict development next to wells, home costs would go up, and more low-wage workers would be priced out of Colorado. Even some environmentalists agree. Matt Sura has worked as an attorney for prominent environmental groups. He says their focus has always been on restricting where new wells are put, because those are the bigger, noisier, more intense operations. When it comes to the state's legacy of existing wells? Unfortunately, the die is cast. We've got so many oil and gas wells that are sprinkled throughout these communities that we're going to have to figure out a way to coexist. He says by instituting better inspections, tougher regulations to ensure safety. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Coming up tomorrow on Colorado Matters, we'll talk about a study out of the University of Colorado, which finds that at least 116 fires and explosions have occurred at oil and gas operations between 2006 and 2015. More on that study and those incidents tomorrow on the program. Three Denver children excel at something many 20-year-olds have no idea how to do, write in cursive. They just claimed first, second, and third prizes in a national cursive contest. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine visited the Stanley British Primary School, where cursive is considered essential, and brain science backs that up. This is the digital age, and I'm looking at beautiful cursive handwriting by 11-year-old Liam Cassidy and Ashlyn, also 11, and Gavin, 9, Beringer. They're a brother and sister duo. It is rare to see such painstaking effort put into penmanship. There's a sense among these children that writing in cursive makes them feel like they're part of the adult world. Because it is like talking in a different language, but on paper. It is That's Gavin reading from his prize-winning essay. His sister Ashlyn, in her essay on why cursive is cool, likens handwriting to an ice skater. The paper is the rink. 
The sharp, striking, shiny, sleek silver blade scratches the radiant light blue ice. Mine isn't quite as descriptive, but... Here's Liam. Every time I pick up a pen, I begin to think about all the reasons I love cursive. One example is, at times, cursive can be an excellent form of self-expression and catharsis. This is not griffinage, a fancy word for chicken scrawl. These are lovely loops, symmetrical slants, and flawless flow. The three writing samples I'm looking at are winners in the annual Cursive is Cool contest by the National Campaign for Cursive. Why does cursive need a campaign? Because nobody was teaching it anymore, and there were no expectations in the classrooms from teachers. That's Margarita Mian. She's a parent at the school. She's also a big advocate for cursive writing and acted as Stanley British Primary School's handwriting consultant for the early grades. Colorado's academic standards have no expectations for handwriting or cursive. It's up to each district. By first or second grade, many teachers switch to keyboarding. But at Stanley, the school the three national winners attend, printing is taught in K through second grade. Cursive takes over in third, along with keyboarding, all the way to fifth grade. Liz Moore teaches K through second grade. She says handwriting allows students to physically manipulate what are abstract symbols. It helps them consolidate their understanding of letters and what they are and how they work much faster than I think if we were to try to teach them how to write just with a keyboard. And Moore has brain science on her side. It turns out a neural circuit is activated when we write, which engages the brain's motor pathways in a way that typing doesn't. Another study shows that children who write with their hands produce more words more quickly than they do on a keyboard. And the study says they express more ideas. To me, it's very important to protect time and allow children to have time where they're interacting with the world in ways that are not just in front of screens. Question. What is your favorite letter to write in cursive? Gavin, not surprisingly, says capital G, the first letter he ever learned to write. You know what? G's are super cool in cursive, aren't they? Because am I doing this right? You go up, loop, loop, wait a minute, wait a minute, up, loop, loop, down, something like that? Yeah. Yes. Gavin shows me. Oh, yes. It's got three loops in it. Yeah. Amazing. And the hardest letter for Ashlyn, it's F. You have to make them like the same length and stuff. And this, like, Ashlyn gets technical describing why writing an F is hard. It's that attention to details that the judges in the national competition liked. Liam's secret is repetition. Writing is almost like a sport because it takes a lot of focus and practice to master. When you first, your teacher first said you're going to learn cursive, did any of you think, ah, why do we have to learn this? It looks so hard. I thought, like, why should we learn cursive? I already know print and stuff. It just didn't make sense to me. But she wrote once a week for three months using the school's curriculum, handwriting without tears. And then she got the hang of it. And I felt like there is a reason of why we learned it. I asked what the reason is. Um, I mean, I can't explain it exactly, but... Um, but then the kids say you can take fast notes, read your grandmother's letters, and this insight from Ashlyn. It's almost like if you know English, okay, and then you're like, why should I learn Spanish, you know? Why should I learn another language? There's a bunch of reasons why. Like, you can go to a different country and you can speak with more people and stuff, you know? Like, in cursive, you're able to read the Constitution if you know cursive. And that would make America's founding fathers smile. I'm Jenny Brending, Colorado Public Radio News. 
now someone for whom penmanship is everything. He actually turned it into a career. Artist Jake Weidman of Denver is the youngest of only 12 master penmen in the world. Critics are awestruck by his work, which blends calligraphy, drawing, and painting. We spoke in 2014. Jake, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Ryan. What is a master penman? Uh, A master penman is really a vintage title. Back in the day, uh, people actually went to art school art schools to become career penmen. And uh, before the days of typewriters and everything else, that they needed somebody always on staff to be able to write legibly uh, for them. So this could be uh, law offices, banks, um, or creating certain certificates for um, major associations. And so you could actually get a career as a penman. Well, the best of the best, the greats of the greats were master penmen, regarded so by their colleagues and friends. These were the ones who uh, were really taking the pen and pushing the envelope, doing (laughs) things uh, with the, at the tip of a pen that nobody else ever dreamed was possible. And so this, this was this uh, beautiful elite group of penmen that was born out of uh, just an amazing craft. Yeah. So. And I suppose uh, there are fewer master penmen in part because the need for them um, by, you know, in business or something like that has, has greatly reduced. But I imagine then that uh, artistically that's very satisfying. You're one of uh, a few master penmen in the world. Uh, yeah, it, it is. Um, it, it certainly sets me apart and it sets my work apart. Uh, yeah, it, it um, of course, you know, genius loves company. And so uh, um, all of us <laughs> would know, love. I'm not sure I knew that. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, to have more penmen, more people inspired by this art form is is really the goal. And that's really what um, maintaining the tradition of um, what a mas- master penman is, is really all about. So even the responsibility that comes with being a master penman is to see that others reach that level. Is it something you went to school for, or had to be certified in? No, unfortunately, they do not teach um, what I learned in school. Uh, it's actually learned through an apprenticeship program. Oh. Um, and it's uh, really established through an association that was created uh, about 65 years ago when they noticed a major hit to the form of handwriting. And uh, the association is called the International Association of Master Penmen, Engrossers, and Teachers of Handwriting, or <laughs> I am Peth for short. Thank God there's a short. I am Peth. Yes, okay. I am Peth. <laughs> I am Peth. I want to get to this artwork on display at the Crawford Hotel. Uh, this is, again, at Union Station in Denver. There's an image of it our, at our website, cprnews.org. It's called Indivisible, and it depicts two zebras back-to-back but also intertwined. Um, what's indivisible about it as well is that you can't tell where the drawing begins and the calligraphy ends. This gorgeous scroll work just flows out from the zebra's stripes. Talk about conceiving this piece. Uh, for this piece, I was really inspired by um, this art form that stemmed from script calligraphy called flourishing. flourishing. And so all of the different line work that you see, this cascading of interlocking uh, beautiful fluid lines is known as flourishing. And so zebras actually uh, it baffled biologists for years because they didn't know why a zebra had stripes until they found out that it actually 
actually broke up the individual and meshed them together with the rest of everybody else in the herd, and thereby they eluded their prey um, by the mass conglomeration of black and white stripes. And so this piece really says, uh, to, uh, alone we perish, but together we flourish. And so it binds the two um, together in this beautiful, beautiful interlocking flourishing. Interesting. In a place that is all about the binding together of transportation, of people traveling together and uh, of, of kind of civic gathering as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to say that um, you have come up with your own is it calligraphic? Calligraphic? What is the word? Pens. Calligraphic. Calligraphic. Yes. You've come up with your own calligraphic pens in part to solve a problem you've run into. Uh, absolutely. You know, I uh, there was a real lack of... Um, these great old pens that were used back in the day. And so I took it upon myself to learn how to create my own pens. And some of them can be very uh, elaborate and involve not only um, work on the lathe, but also a lot of hand carving as well, Uh Um, even including uh, one specific design that is an ergonomic pen holder, which is designed to uh, really assist you as you write and distribute the pressure across all of the different contact points with the hand and uh, thereby alleviate stress as you write. I imagine that it's a stress you've felt over the course of your life doing this. <laughs> Absolutely. It's something that I've had to train for. So. You have a favorite quote um, from back in the 1960s. Uh, yes. In the 1960s, there was, uh, it was actually written by the uh, New York Times, and um, it says, The art of calligraphy has twice been killed stone dead by mechanical invention and has twice found a new set of justifications. Uh, as an industry for the manual of copying texts, it was destroyed by the printing press. Uh-huh. As an essential tool for commerce and finance and evidence of gentility, it flourished for three centuries and was strangled by the typewriter. In its third and present lifetime, it stands with the fine arts, safe from any further technological threat. And I suppose there it stands with you. Yes, absolutely. It is It is my passion to see that uh, this form, once born as, as a craft of communication, now lives, thrives, and flourishes as an art form. So that is, and that is all that I strive for in the context of my art pieces, is uh, to continually bring uh, both lettering and flourishing into my art pieces, which gives them just this profound new life and greater expression. Master penman Jake Weidman, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you very much. Jake lives in Denver. We spoke in 2014. And before Colorado Matters comes to a close, a message from a listener in Boulder, Marcella Lawrence. In January, her late husband, Commander Jack L. Lawrence, was buried at Fort Logan National Cemetery in Denver. She and others at the funeral heard this. It is the honor bell, and we talked about it on Memorial Day with the veteran who created it. He wanted to do more to honor service members when they passed away. When the bell tolled at Commander Lawrence's burial, his widow didn't know what it was. I just remember that beautiful sound, and I just didn't know anything about it. And it was so wonderful to hear the story of how the bell was built It was made mostly of bronze, weighs a thousand pounds, with artifacts like medals and dog tags melted in. Marcella Lawrence's husband was a commander in the Navy and served in World War II in Korea. He also taught ROTC at CU. 
he actually served because he was in the reserve 26 years, 10 months and five days. And that is Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner or CPR News on Facebook. This is Colorado Public Radio.